Hey folks, welcome back to the DC3Cast. I am Brian. With me, as always, are my pals, Zach and Vince. We are going to eventually get to the comics released on July 24th, 2019. But first, we have a little bit of San Diego Comic-Con news to wrap up. The big news that came out after we had recorded is after the sweep of the Eisners by Mr. Miracle, we have been introduced to the latest Mitch Gerrids slash Tom King project, which also features Evan Doc Shaner, and that is called Strange Adventures, and it is an Adam Strange story, and uh, the cover is is just the most Tom King bullshit <laughs> you can get in one place. Uh, there are two covers. There's a beautiful Doc Shaner cover, which is very traditional, sort of uh, smiling Adam Strange, and there's the Mitch Garrett's cover, which uh, has things written like "Stranger Danger" over his uh, over his face, and it says like "liar" and "murderer," and uh, it basically is just trying to teach to show you that you know. Despite damn, much- I thought he was a hero though. I thought so too, but apparently not, man. Wait a minute. What if the villains are the only ones we can trust? Holy shit. We'll get to that in a few issues, actually. Um, But, yeah. um, What do you guys think of this Strange Adventures announcement? I mean, I I liked Mr. Miracle well enough. Sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, when we talked, we, we talked about almost every issue of that book, I think. And I think we were pretty measured about, like, I was honest that that I liked quite a bit of it, even though it still had some of that Tom King bullshit in there. Um, I, you know, if we got the same thing, the same general quality uh, from this book, I, I wouldn't mind that. I, I think that's fine. Um, I just think, you know, I... I I think I think you you almost kind of know a little bit what to expect, not plot wise, but like tone wise. It's going to be this this thing where where we he recontextualizes Adam Strange and adds some like mundane aspects to his his job or his role as a superhero, and that's going to come off as really profound, you know. Well, and, have uh, you heard what he says the book is about? Yes, do we have to? <laughs> well, I mean, I, we do. I think we do. Yeah. So he said that, like, first of all, he said like, I'm not resting on the things I have written about before. And I was like, well, bro, your cover tells a different story, but that's okay. Uh, but apparently, this is all about Trump. And I mean, in in the abstract sense. Yes. Yes. Uh, and I don't know, like, if he just means like the crumbling of our systems or if he means like the sort of um you know president elected by by reality tv fame not president but like, like, like someone in power for like you know illegitimate reasons or I, I don't know what element of trump's nightmare he's talking about um but obviously that is that is part of his inspiration here but i mean and look like you said if this is a piece with um, Mr. Miracle, I am fine with this. I would much rather Tom King do two of these a year than do Batman every month or than do Heroes in Crisis. I, you know, I think if he wants to take these sort of esoteric, 
side missions through the DC universe and, and make up some profound sounding stuff that half the time lands and half the time doesn't. I am totally cool with that. I am way more on board with that than what we're getting right now. Zach, what do you think about all this? You've been uh, quiet. You're, you're probably still I, reeling uh, from the announcement that the Joker's trick blocked you. I just <laughs> am... I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm shook by that. I don't really know how to respond. Yeah, um, yeah no. Uh, I don't know. Um... I really like I saw this and I was I, I really couldn't have cared maybe less. Um Doc Shaner on it is good. Um I'm down for that. But um the only thing the only I think like glint of hope that I have for this is that maybe the Omega Men will show up. Ooh baby. <laughs> yeah. That's I that's it. A uh, friend of the show, Walter Richardson, had tweeted that he felt about Shaner in this case like he did with Stuart Eminem when he got that Mark Millar book, where he was like happy that lots of people would be seeing his work, but not looking forward to reading it at all. And I could see that. Yeah. Good for, good for Doc Shaner that he'll be part of a book that will sell a billion copies in trade. And win an Eisner. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think we maybe should talk about that because it probably, it very well could win an Eisner, and that would be three years in a row that Tom King would get best writer, the Eisner for best writer. And that feels like a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so I promise I'm not ignoring that question. I'm just building off of that question. You guys, Zach alerted us in a text uh, to, uh, by the way, our texts will soon be Patreon content. Uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, alerted us to some of the things that Tom King said during a uh, a spotlight panel at San Diego Comic-Con, which were some of the more ludicrous things I've ever read any human being say. Uh, he's super not self-aware. It comes off as really embarrassing and all of that. Uh, but one of the things that I think was very clear from that conversation is that Tom King I think cares more about winning the Eisner or at least being part of that critical discourse than he does about writing good comics like, I, I really think at this point that is where his his energies lie do you guys agree with that um well I would like to think that that Eisner winning comics are good comics. Um, but I, I know what you mean. I know but, what you're saying. But there is Eisner bait the way there's Oscar bait, right? Yes. Yeah, I said it when the first issue of uh, of Mr. Miracle came out. I think I said something like, uh, that was great, but that one page where Scott Free just stared at you for nine panels and said, give me the Eisner, give me the Eisner, was yeah. a little much. Yeah. Um, I No, I know exactly what you mean. Um, I just think... Yeah, I I think there is an aspect of that, but I I think more than that, I think he sees. I do believe that he grow grew up reading superhero comics and loved them, and I just think he sees them differently from the way that I do, and uh, 
that's what causes a lot of the a lot of the rift between his work and, and my opinion on it. Um, I, I, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna suggest that he has some motivation that I don't, I don't know. I don't know the man, but, but I know what you're saying. And, and, and I can, I can see it. Yeah. What I really I know what didn't you're like, at. what I really didn't like in that interview, which may not be the same one, but there was, there was another thing that broke a couple days later where Tom King basically said like, you have no idea how many people hated Heroes in Crisis, but basically I'm still right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I would expect a writer to defend their work, but... But but there's a way to do it that's not that. Right, and the, the thing that... The thing that bugs me is when he's like, uh, oh, Wally's the hero of Heroes in Crisis. And like, if you're... If Heroes in Crisis is to be as successful, and this is getting off on a tangent that we, that we don't need to, but like if Heroes in Crisis is going to be successful at what it's doing, then you can't use words like heroes and villains, such and such as the hit hero, such and such as the, the villain. That doesn't really apply, and that comes off as really um, uh, kind of flagrant, like being flagrant with the feelings of critics and fans or whatever. Because uh, you can't just say, oh, Wally's the hero. Because that's not, that isn't even the thesis of the book. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it's supposed to be more complex than that. And you're right. So the way that he said it as an answer came off as really, uh, how did you put it? I don't even know. Whatever you said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the way he said it was great. Dismissive. <laughs> Yes, I, I, had, I had said on Twitter that, you know, uh, Tom King is echoing Homer Simpson's Everybody's Stupid But Me, which, which, is, which is how I feel whenever I read one of his interviews at this point. I just feel like a lot of his interviews are basically saying, people can criticize me, but they don't know, man. And <laughs> I just, again, I want a writer to defend his work. I don't want someone to dislike his work because someone else dislikes it. But I think there needs to be a bit more of an understanding of, well, maybe what I wanted to get across here was not appropriately got, like, that message was not appropriately received. And maybe there are reasons that are my fault, me being the reader, that I didn't properly receive it. But there also probably are some reasons from the creator side why it wasn't properly received. And I think that there are plenty of ways for creators to say that in ways that don't come off sounding like I'm right and you're wrong. No, it's the children who are wrong. <laughs> Thank you for another great Simpsons reference to there, Zach. It's the Eisner voters who are wrong for never giving the God of all comics, Grant Morrison, the best writer award in the history of the Eisners. So that's true. That's all that that's all that we need to know about how much this stuff really means in the in the long run. Well, we're going to be talking about two issues tonight, one of which will more than likely get an Eisner nomination and should not by any means, and one that I hope will get an Eisner nomination, but I could see it not happening. And that is a basically a war crime on comics. So <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um but we should talk about a couple other news things that dropped. Um, I wanted to mention very quickly, there's going to be a um, 
a Secrets of Sinister House one-shot released in October, which DC's been doing a lot of these sort of different, uh, you know, Halloween spooky-themed anthologies every year. And this one has a pretty cool uh, lineup. There's a vampire Batman story that follows Red Rain by Raphael Albuquerque. There's a Constantine story by Brian Hill and Alessandro Vitti. Paul Dini's writing a Harley Quinn and Zatanna short with art by uh, C.N. Tormey. Uh, there's an Adam story by Dan Waters and Sumit Kumar, a Justice League Dark story by Robbie Thompson and Tom Rainey, and House of the Dead by John Lehman and Jorge Fornes. That's a pretty solid Ooh. lineup. John Lehman. Yeah. All right, I guess that's it. See you guys later. Uh, yeah, yep. Okay. <laughs> Good show. <laughs> uh, and then, Zach, you want to talk about a little bit of uh, CW-verse casting stuff. Um. Well, you didn't, so I didn't think we were going to. No, we can do it. Go ahead, buddy. Oh, I don't know. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um. Yeah. No, I just think it's cool that Brandon Routh is going to play uh, Superman again in the Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover, but not the Superman Returns Superman. Uh, he will be the Kingdom Come Superman, which is pretty interesting. And I kind of hope that maybe we get the Kingdom uh, Kingdom Come Green Lantern in there too. I don't. I, I would be surprised, but I can hope. Now that's um, interesting. Um, well, gee, I, I I thought so. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I was just saying I had never considered that necessarily. Yeah, um, I wonder like if it's just going to be like a one-off thing. I could I could see that working on the CW budget and everything, but it it would be cool if it was more. Well, let's go through some of the other uh, announcements here. It did say that uh, Tyler Hochlin, God, is that his name? Hochin? The guy who plays Superman on Supergirl is coming back for this also. Um, yes. Uh, as is um, Burt Ward of uh, Batman 66 fame. has not said who he's playing yet. I can't imagine he's playing Robin, but goddamn, would that be great if they put him in the same costume? And just had him run out there and say, like, holy red skies. Jiminy Jillikers. Yeah. Holy red skies, Batman. Um, uh, Tom Cavanaugh, who's played, you know, various versions of Harrison Wells on the CW shows, is playing Pariah, who has a big role in Crisis on Infinite Earths. He's um, also playing his character from Scrubs, too, which is uh, weird. Yes. JD's brother. Yeah. Yeah. Is is and, that real? No. No. Oh, I mean, I wouldn't. But know Zach, at this he point. is playing. He is playing Ed from Stuckyville from the titular show Ed. <laughs> I loved that show. Loved that show. What was the theme song of that? Next year by the Foo Fighters. That's right. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. then That's in good. season two or three, it was a uh, a song by Clem Snide. Sure. Yeah. Who I played bass with on stage once. Oh. There you go. Fun Brian fact. Um, one of the things I love about the CW, actually, is that I feel like they're with, when they do their casting, they're doing casting that is, I wouldn't call it stunt casting, but they're doing it to appeal to a certain sector of the audience at times. Like, for instance, I have not seen this past season of Supergirl, but John Cryer played Lex Luthor on Supergirl. Yeah. John Cryer played Lex Luthor. Lex Luthor's nephew in Superman 4. So even though John Cryer is a star of his own right and probably, you know, 
a reason someone will tune into that show. If you're somebody who knows sort of Superman cinematic history, that's a really cool little Easter egg there. You know, Brandon Routh as Superman, similar thing. Um, yeah, I uh, I kind of want to catch up on the CW stuff. Mm. There's so much. I know. What, what I might I do need, is I, I, I might just somebody watch... to make me a. Oh, go ahead. So I might just watch the Elseworlds cross crossover from last season. Yeah, that's a good idea. I might go through and watch all of those, maybe, to yeah. get ready for it. Because um, I haven't, I haven't watched any of the CW shows since like the season three, uh, Arrow, season two, Flash, season one, Legends of Tomorrow. All, all of that stuff was when I checked out. I think your timeline is slightly askew there, but I know what you mean. No, I'm pretty sure no, I'm right. The Flash came in with season three of Arrow. Okay, then season... Oh, okay, okay. So, yeah, you're right. Season one of Flash. Then when... Legends and the Flash... Season one of Legends... Legends started Legends like six months Flash after the Flash. After game. Flash. Okay, yeah. okay. Then I... Okay, then three, one, one. Yeah. I stopped watching Flash during season two. Okay. I, di I didn't finish it. That's That's what it was. Um, but yeah, um, the first three parts, it's a five part crossover, three parts are airing in December, two in January. And, uh, I, I think it's pretty much being guessed because Arrow was ending at this point too. I think it's pretty much being hypothesized that Oliver Queen is going to do the Barry Allen thing from Crisis and then he'll be the one to sacrifice himself. Makes sense. And they're also saying that probably Tyler What's-His-Face will die and Supergirl will hold him in a, you know, in the oh. reverse of the uh, Crisis cover. That'll make some idiots very upset. It will. <laughs> it certainly will. All right, well, we have a, we have a bunch of, uh, of reviews to get to tonight. Real quickly, though, here is our list ahead of that. Um... The good list has Wonder Woman on it. The okay list has Dial H, Freedom Fighters, Justice League Dark, Martian Manhunter, and the Terrifics. The Sandman Universe list has Books of Magic, and the Jurgens list has Batman Beyond. Do you guys know that this issue of Batman Beyond represents the 50th in a row that Jurgens has done because he did the pre-rebirth uh, Batman Beyond also? So many memories, too. Yeah. All those fantastic issues that none of us can remember. Shway. Very shway. Very. All right, let's get to Action Comics number 1013, written by Brian Bendis, illustrated by Simon Kudransky. Vince, take it away. What'd you think? Um, th this was a strange issue, I think, in that not very much happened, I don't think. <laughs> And that basically the entire issue was kind of frank rather than the offer, like the Lex Luthor offer that's been going through all these uh, like mainline DC books coming at the end. It kind of framed the whole issue, which was a little weird. Um, Luthor came up and, and offered Miss Leone, like the, the owner of the Daily Planet, something at the start of the issue which is 
it was different from the way that the offer has happened in basically every other uh, issue that it's happened in. Right. But then he also shows up at the end to make the offer to the to Robinson Good, the Red Cloud uh, character, um, which, which was just weird to me. Um, I, and also, I just I struggle with Kudransky's art still. Um, I know a lot of people like it. I think I think certain panels or certain pages can look really good. I I've looked at his Instagram and there's lots of beautiful work on there. I, I think he is capable of doing really, really good work. It's just not the art style that I prefer to read at, in like sequential storytelling. Sure. It's mm-hmm. it's like too inconsistent and stiff for me. And I don't they're, they're, I don't know. The, the the technique is just weird for me in that it it comes out like characters come out very inconsistent from panel to panel there's a couple of uh there's a couple of pretty good uh nut faces from perry yes. white in this <laughs> issue i think but they're like struggle nuts you know they're like <laughs> there is also a very good nut face uh hang on, I'm, I'm finding it here it's when superman comes face to face with one of the leviathan agents mm-hmm. uh it's the uh page 14 bottom of the page the the Leviathan guy is totally uh, nutting in that fa- in that panel. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah. what I was gonna say is, I think this is actually some of Kudransky's better art from uh, of recent times. Sure. Um, it's just not. It's just, uh, I don't know. It doesn't suit me, and that's. I know that that's. I I. I'm the center of my own world, not anyone else's. So, um, that's fine if other people like it. I I think that this is the best, or the the, the Kudransky art that I have liked the most. I guess it's oh. not as bad of a fit for this book as I kind of expected it to. When I think of like peak bad kudransky i think of like the latter issues of john's green lantern run do you guys remember that yes yeah that this isn't that necessarily i will say i don't think this is as good as his penguin uh pain and prejudice miniseries Uh, i never read that that was the thing that's what that's when i first came into contact with his work and i really enjoyed that miniseries and it's all it's been i've been chasing it ever since yeah. Um, so I thought this issue was interesting in that we see Bendis kind of do something that I think a lot of creators are reticent to do, which is to like basically tie into two separate events at the same time. Like you know, you, oftentimes if a book is, like, I don't think anybody would have balked if Event Leviathan was the only sort of villainous thing happening in action comics until that's over. But Bendis introduced, you know, a fair amount of Year of the Villain stuff in this issue. And that's interesting. I don't know if it's necessarily good or bad, but I I think it shows that Bendis is very much being a team player at DC, which for Mm -hmm. whatever reason, people had the expectation that he was going to come in and sort of be above the law at DC and he was going to do whatever he wants. 
And all indications thus far have been him doing the opposite of that. That he has been very involved in everything and has been, you know, again, people were mocking the idea that he would have read uh, the Mr. Oz story. And we reference that all the time. But I think that this, again, shows that Bendis is trying to place his work squarely in the DC universe and not doing some sort of uh, work that is somewhat floating on the periphery of it. And so from that aspect, I, I, I'm, I'm happy that, that he's doing that because I think that typically leads to better stories. Um, but I will also say that not a lot happens in this book. And so while I applaud Bendis for being a team player, I also have to wag my finger at Bendis for having such a decompressed issue that probably could have been like small parts of the next three issues and not lose anything. Yeah, we're we're in crossover Bendis mode, and it's not as bad as it could be, I think. But it's not it's not as good as it's been either. Do we know how long Event Leviathan is? Six issues. Okay. All right. I can live with that. So uh, I have a couple couple more notes here. Sure. If... Um, so there, there's a, there's a, a big plot point in this issue where, uh, Superman kind of realizes, or Clark, Clark is at the daily planet and he's telling Perry White that because he got transported to, to India at one point by, by the, the, um, Leviathan stooge, right? Um, maybe all these organizations got teleported somewhere rather than destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm 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 wondering why they nobody thought of that like right when it happened. Well, wasn't that kind of mentioned in one of the books? Was it? I, if if it was, then I was uh, then I missed it. I want to think say it Bat- was alluded to. Yeah. I want to say Batman said like there's no bodies, which means we don't know that they're that they're here, and it's all just gone. So maybe I don't know if it was explicitly said, but it was certainly alluded at before okay sure i think you're i think you're right okay then another thing i wanted to point out was uh uh one of one of my uh, online friends tim i i think libraria man on twitter uh pointed out that the outfit that the leviathan stooge was wearing looks a lot like a midnighter yeah costume. i was i was definitely fooled for a panel <laughs> yeah which I think you know that could very easily be, like you say, like a like a a red herring or like an Easter egg, right? Or it could be anything from there to like, is the authority, is the Wildstorm universe not necessarily uh, uh, Warren Ellis's version that he's working on right now? Is some version of that universe involved in this somehow? You know. That's probably going. That's probably taking it too far. But it made me think of it, and the reason why is because if you think about all the organizations in DC Comics, right? Who's left? Right. Well, technically, technically, like, couldn't Skywatch or you know whoever be part of that too? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how DC thinks about those things. You know, um, but it's just something that. That his bringing that up made me think of that. And I don't I know if there's pretty any much. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna. I don't know if there's any credence to that, but 
What I was going to say is I think if, if, if there's there's probably only one guy at DC who could get away with that right now, and that's probably Bendis. Yeah. Snyder can do whatever he wants to. I think Snyder gets more pushback than you think. Ah, he fights people. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm going to leave that one alone and going to move us over to talking about uh, what's next? Batgirl. Batgirl number 37, the Kevin Smith number. Um, <laughs> come on, Vince. I expect you to get that joke. I mean, I'm 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 shaking my head. If that's what you want. I've been telling people this is my Kevin Smith year because I'm 37. So. Uh, 37. Wait, there we go. Thank you. Um, uh, this issue is the first issue by new Jesus. series writer Cecil Castellucci, illustrated by Carmine D.G. Domenico. Um, it's this is a weird issue because it's the first of a new creative team. But it's sort of picking up in the middle of a story that Marguerite Scott was doing. Right? Doesn't this feel like a middle chapter? Kind of. I mean it's it's using it's using a lot of the same elements. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say that it's picking up her story halfway through. I mean it's you it's picking up her status quo. Okay. All right, maybe, maybe that's a better way to put it. Okay. Yeah, it's not like she's coming in mid arc or mid like Marguerite Scott closed out that last story arc see i then... stopped reading so I, I guess it feels to me like i just it, th- th- this feels like it could have been the next issue that i had read mm-hmm. it was like no never mind <laughs> what you gotta say it now you gotta say it. it feels like i'm wearing nothing at all <laughs> oh stupid sexy zach um so Vince, did you read all of Batgirl up to this point, or had you dropped off as well? I've been reading it, yeah. Okay, how does this compare uh-huh. to the last few issues of Batgirl? I, I think uh, it's pretty similar in quality. I think I don't. I'm I'm surprised at how much it is drawing upon Scott's run, and um, and how really you know at least one issue in. At least one issue in, if you would have told me that this was still Marguerite Scott, I would have believed you. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's no uh, Castellucci hasn't put her stamp on this yet. You know, but it's early, right? It's and this is also this, a year of the villain tie-in issue. Very heavy year of the villain tie-in. Um, yeah, yeah, actually, surprisingly so. That uh, probably the probably the best trick of the issue is that this quote unquote new villain uh, shows up, and Lex Luthor is basically the reason why she or it is activated. <laughs> you know, right? Um, so there was a bit of weirdness in here I wanted to talk about, which is we've seen a couple of stories now, if not in print already, but we've seen it in uh, in solicits for characters that were upset they didn't get an offer from Lex, right? And so this is the... Uh, the majority of this issue is uh, Batgirl fighting Killer Moth, who's upset he did not get an offer. But Killer Moth has done so many, like, upgrades to his suit 
that he essentially is able to defeat Batgirl by himself here. And that feels significant for a few reasons. And I wonder if it will ever come out of like, if there'll be a storyline reason for how not getting an offer pushed these certain villains into more dangerous territory. Because Killer Moth has never really been a marquee character in any way, whether in like power set or in, you know, focus from a book. So I find it that it's interesting that he is somehow elevated here to being somebody who can defeat Batgirl, who's, you know, one of the canon smartest people in the DC universe. Does that make sense? Uh, he spent his life savings, though. How much could that be? Come on. <laughs> in this economy? Yeah. Wait, is he, is he under 33? Is he a millennial? I don't know. Because if so, he has no savings. We know that from uh, from reading. Anyway. Somebody say something. <laughs> I thought this was kind of kind of lame <laughs> kind of dull yeah I, I think it's just okay at this point I agree with you Zach That's. It, it, uh, I don't think it was good, less impressive than I thought Casalucci's first issue would be after you know coming off of how good um, Shade was yeah yeah, DJ Domenico's art is great, as always. Yeah. Yeah, it was a very, uh, very action-heavy issue, which, which showcased uh, DJ and Domenico quite a bit. So that was nice to see. But I also wish they had never gone back to this Batgirl costume. The Burnside costume is so much better. Yeah. You're not wrong. This would definitely the Burnside costume would have definitely given this a ten out of ten, because at that point the costumes would have been great. <laughs> Bringing back an old goof because why not? Yeah, uh, when have we, when have we ever done that? Exactly, exactly. All right, I, I mean, I, I I have nothing else to say about Black Girl. No, I think that's good. Okay, uh, I'll give it another few issues. But let's get on it, Cecil. All right, uh, Batman Curse of the White Knight by uh, Sean Murphy. Guys. Is, is this the one that you think might get nominated for an Eisner? Yes, it will. No, I don't think so. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. It's not as bad as that first miniseries was. It's one it's, issue, it's one, bro. I know. It's, I, I know. I agree. Well, what, what do you I want me to agree. you want me to review issue three right now, Brian? You're, 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 you're making a bold. You could say this issue is better than any issue of that miniseries. That's what I'm saying. Okay, that's that's effectively what I'm saying. I I think the thing I wish it were. Well, you I wish turned it me were, into a into a semantic douchebag, and I hate it. Why did I do that? I'm not that way. <laughs> yes, you do. Um, you make me into this. Anyway, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> what I was gonna say was, I almost w- I wish it were better, for one thing. But if it's not gonna be 
good. I wish it were like entertainingly bad. You know, to me, this is just boring. This is just, it's a bog standard Batman and Joker story now. And every element of it is like a very middling version of something we've already seen. And I can, I can expand more on that as we go along, but I guess I want to hear Zach. It sounded like you were going to say something. Um, no, I don't. If I was, I lost my train of thought. I, yeah, I didn't, I, I do think that this is not as bad as the first volume. Yeah. I think that's where you interjected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I will say that I agree that story-wise, I think this is off to a better start than the first volume. However, I will say art-wise, this is much worse than the first volume. Yeah, yep. That was another thing I noted. It looks, I mean, the art is suffering somehow. You know, you you don't want to say rushed because artists, like, yell at you and say, like, it's not rushed, you know? Right. But, but there, there's something, I don't know, the characters look more cartoonish than I'm used to from, but not in a good way, not in like a, not in like a generally expressive way or anything like that. Um, See, to me, the reason why I would not say that this is better than any issue of the first white Knight series is if you're going to get me to read a Sean Murphy comic, I want to do so for the artwork. I don't care about him as a writer because he's never given me reason to care about him as a writer. He's given me reason to care about him as an artist, and so I want a book that's going to look good from him. And he is certainly capable of delivering some gorgeous-looking books. This is so not that, though. And that's what bugs me, is that if I'm going to have to slog through this, I want it to at least look good while I do it. And I don't think the story really gives him that much of an opportunity to 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 do all that much interesting artistic stuff you know what i'm saying like let me let me go through what i mean when i say like it's a boring version of a thing that we've seen before um so it opens on this ancient what what, 1800s or something lord wayne versus general laffy arkham which great name right off the bat yep excellent vampire (laughs) a vampire apparently but um so we're we're given essentially one of the main storylines of this mini is going to be Bruce investigating this secret thing from Gotham's history and his own family's history and the way that that intersects with the Arkham family, presumably even the Joker and uh, John Paul Valley's family history, right? Which who does that sound like? <laughs> what? What bat writer does that sound well, like? That was one of my notes. I have written down here Dime Store Scott Snyder. Yes, exactly. But but yeah, but again, like the most stock version of it. Like, oh, Batman just finds this journal and you know, like there's there's not I don't yet have that really interesting twist that's unexpected, or it's all very expected. Even the way that, that John Paul Valley is brought in and then like eventually given the sword again, like just totally standard stuff. Um, the detective work that, that Bruce is asked to do in this comic is all so convenient. And so like 
surface level. Like he shows up at Arkham and this, uh, you know, the Joker had stabbed somebody with a pen and he's like, well, the blood wouldn't pool like that. If you were stabbed in this room, you know, there would have been splatter, but you know, it's just like the most standard take on Bruce as a detective as well. Um, and also some, some shitty Jim Gordon stuff in there as well. <laughs> yeah. Like Jim Gordon basically saying like, Hey, can you coerce a victim before a lawyer gets here? <laughs> yep. Uh, which I, maybe that's, maybe that's why it's black. Label. <laughs> <laughs> because that, that and a couple shits. Because uh, subverting the criminal justice system is truly not appropriate for children. Yeah, right, wow. right. Uh, Just for people in the White House. And the- I mean, that's what Batman's about anyway, really, so. That's true. That's true. Good point. Um, uh, the other thing, what are you going to say, Zach? Oh, say no, something? go ahead and finish. I had something that I, I thought of when you started on your, your uh, when you started on this line of thought, but go ahead and finish. Okay, so the last thing I was going to say is the disappearing pen trick, which is like, Okay, that's just a dime store version of the disappearing pencil trick from The Dark Knight. Like, all of this stuff is cribbed from other stuff in a less interesting way. Yes. Yeah. So, so what were you going to say, Zach? Um, I think that um, Sean Gordon Murphy watched, uh, he, he like binge watched Castlevania in between the two volumes of this. Mm. <laughs> uh,. Because like it's it's straight Castlevania right down to the whip, like Bruce getting the whip. Um, oh, that's he's, good. He's at Belmont now. That's good. ooh ooh. Now now I like this. Now it's good. <laughs> Not really, but I do I no. do I do like what you're saying. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Um. Do you think that uh, we were supposed to see Jean-Paul Valley's penis at some point? <laughs> oh, yeah. That got edited out <laughs> furiously. Um, I was also, I was also uh, sad to be reminded that in this universe, Dick is a cop. Yep. <laughs> so, but I mean, it, if you're a fan of, of Sean Murphy... You might disagree with us that that the art. I mean, you might see the art for something more than I think that it is. Which you know, he's got a lot of fans. Um, a lot of people like this, but it's. I don't think it's bad. It's not awful. Um, it's it's readable, but it's just there, there's been so many stories similar to this, and I, it even does some things to to I think like file off the edges that. Now, don't get me wrong. They were edges that were in the original miniseries that I hated. Like, Batman was a total psycho in that, right? Like, he's he's driving his car on the rooftops and just, like, wrecking shit, right? And not giving a shit about it. And Murphy makes, like, a concerted effort in this story to have Bruce realize that he was wrong, you know? Right. Same, same, with, uh, same with the Joker, where... You know, the Joker basically denounces everything that Jack Napier did in the first miniseries. So, you know, it's it's like they're it's like he's intentionally moving to a less interesting dynamic than he already had in the first miniseries without anything 
more interesting to take its place. And, th- and I'm saying that not even having liked any of it in the first place. So <laughs> I guess the only thing I want to say before we move on, uh, if you guys have nothing else to say, is why do we have to see the Joker's happy trail on the cover? Man. <laughs> I didn't notice that. I don't know if I want to go look. You I'm, don't, I'm going you don't, to look. Vince, you, you don't see you, you don't remember, see pubes or anything, but uh, those okay, they're, they're okay. very low. Those those pants are very low. Do you remember what I texted you, Vince, about this? I don't remember what was it. It was like that D'Angelo untitled music video. Yes, that's right. <laughs> With the Joker's yes. version of it. Yeah. Yeah. Did, and then I said like, "Did Joe Cleo or something?" Like <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> uh, I believe I said. The the joke alone, whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, Just giving up on the joke halfway through. Uh, that's the DC three cast way. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I have nothing else to say about this. Um, yeah, it's gonna make a lot of money, and that's not that. not gonna get that Eisner though. Oh, I think he'll be nominated for art for it. All right, we'll I make a gentleman so too. I think he'll get nominated definitely. I, he got nominated for Batman White Knight, correct? I believe so. That that was that was better looking. Mm. That hasn't stopped an Eisner voter before. <laughs> Damn you! All right, Just well, saying, well friend, it, friendly gentleman's bet. Sure. We'll see next Am- year. Amulet Shopsons. <laughs> if I lose, I'm never coming back to New York, baby. <laughs> Your loss. Your loss. Um, <laughs> I will say, by the way, if any uh, if there are any Eisner voters listening, a nomination for Multiversity makes all this go away. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, no. No. He's yeah. not. We had that really fun Multiversity Skype party when we were nominated last time. I just want to do that again. It was fun. Let's just do it anyway. Let's just pretend. Well, we can do that. All right, let's talk about Detective Comics number 1008, uh, written by Peter Tomasi, illustrated by Doug Monkey. Uh, this is a Joker story, yet the offer is not one to the Joker. It is one to <laughs> Mr. Freeze. Don't really understand why these two things are put together, but that's okay. Um, Forget it, Brian. Fill- this is a filler issue. Okay, so uh, I-, I did have one... One thing to say about this issue that I think is is interesting. Is it just me, or is this the only issue to feature the Joker in the last, gosh, not quite 10 years, since the New 52 started, that could have been an issue of a pre-Flashpoint Joker Batman story? This felt like an episode of Batman the Animated Series to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's that's essentially saying the same thing, you know. Just it is, yeah, it is, yeah. I, uh, yeah. I guess I'm saying I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with both of you. Yeah, yep. That's uh, not that, saying that leads. Re- it's not saying this is a great issue by by any means, but I I just think that the the representation of the Joker was much more old school than we're used to right now. Yeah, yeah. Which leads me to ask, which of the three Jokers is this? Oh, good question. Um. I'm guessing this is. Uh, could this be the pre-Flashpoint Joker? I we won't find out until that John's book comes out. I think. Isn't that coming I out quarter to never? 
<laughs> I think it could. I think that's a possibility, Brian. I think that's. Uh, I think it could be that Joker. I mean, this definitely doesn't feel as as hashtag twisted as we've gotten lately. Well, stuffing unshelled peanuts into an old guy who has a peanut allergy's mouth is that's one of the most twisted Joker's tricks I've ever <laughs> encountered. See, to me, that just def- that definitely feels like an old school Joker thing, though. Sure. Um, I can hear Mar- I can hear Mark Hamill saying. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, mm-hmm. I can't I can't do a Mark Hamill, but uh, my favorite... either of you guys can do that. N- not his Joker, no, no. I can do it. No, <laughs> I can do that though. So, <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, uh, what I was going to say though is my favorite bit of this comic is that. And I legitimately like this. It's it's both funny to me, and I like it. Is that Batman just like rides along with Joker the whole time? <laughs> like Joker <laughs> yeah. takes him on all these different rides, and Batman just goes along with it. And that's again a very like old school Batman thing. Yeah, yeah, very much. This issue is totally filler, but it was fine filler. Yeah, it was fine. I I this was the issue though. Maybe this isn't true, but I, I feel like this is the time to talk about it where I, I think when the um, the offer thing was announced that they were going to be doing these. And I, I think I mentioned that I thought it was kind of cool because it's been a long time since we've had this kind of connective tissue between books. I'm I'm already tired of it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's also we're not getting really interesting stories around these offers. We're just getting essentially mm-hmm. the same panel at the end of each book. Yeah. And and with a couple exceptions, none of these are like real surprises, you know, like wouldn't it be great if like th- this didn't have to do anything with the Joker. Even even if the the offer at the end of this issue was for somebody else completely different than Mr. Freeze, what if it were surprising, you know? But to me, there's nothing surprising about Lex dropping and going like, hey, I can get you your wife back. Like the one thing that anybody knows about Mr. Freeze, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> like, like give us something we haven't seen before, you know? Um, I can't think, I'm not going to think of any examples off the top of my head, but like many of these are very standard like, Lex dropping in and saying, I'm giving you the thing that you being a villain is based around, you know? Right, yeah. And, yeah. That, and in that way, I kind of liked what Bendis did, where we got to see two new characters that Bendis created get an offer from Lex. So at least in that way, there was some unique or surprising motivation, you know? Whereas this, it's like, this is just yanking... Uh, uh, Mr. Freeze's chain again, you know. That poor Victor Freeze. Yeah. Uh, one thing, one other thing I wanted to point out about this issue that I liked is uh, when the Joker says, "I'd hate to see your monthly bat toy nut." Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like I feel like I've seen somebody refer to uh, like an amount of money or a, or a wallet or something as a nut a lot recently and uh watching a lot of mafia related content no no i feel a very mafia thing 
Right. But I feel like it's coming. You would know. I feel like it's coming. <laughs> it's coming back into the lexicon. Soon we're going to be talking about nutting all over the place, and it's going to be referring to medical bills and stuff that <laughs> to, we have to pay. To making your monthly payments. Yeah. 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 Nut all over your school. The thing I sent you yesterday. For anyone out there, by the way, who's on Instagram, you got to follow John Worcester. He's half of Sharp, Sharper Than Worcester, a comedy team. He's the drummer for the Mountain Goats and Bob Mould. And uh, he just posts the most incredible things on Instagram all day long. You got to follow John Worcester. He uh, he posted the T-shirt, and this is the most vulgar thing I've ever said in this show, but it's a T-shirt that has a fishing lure on it, and it says, of course I come fast, I've got fish to catch. Real shirt somebody bought. <laughs> yep. We should have three of them printed up saying, of course I come fast. We've got 15 books to read. <laughs> I've got podcasting to do. <laughs> oh, baby. Zach, you still there? I'm here. Okay. I'm here. All right. All right. Let's get to the final issue of the week before we get to our special back half content. We got the Flash number 75, a big issue because it's the 25th. It, it, it's a multiple of 25. That means DC has to sell you it for another buck. Uh, <laughs> this is written by Josh Williamson, illustrated by Howard Porter in the main story, Christian Duce, and Scott Collins in the backups. So I had fallen a bit behind on uh, the Flash year one. I reread the entire event today, and I have to say, I think it works really well as one read. I don't know if it worked as well reading it sort of monthly, but I think what Williamson did here is really clever in that he told a new story from The Flash's past while tying it into The Flash's present and also doing something with The Flash's now, you know, erased future. But I thought it was an interesting way to go about telling the story and the more I think about it, the more I really enjoyed this arc, even though I am very happy to get back to current day Flash stuff. Zach, you didn't speak so much last time, so let's talk with you about this. What did you think of this issue? Um, I, I have really mixed feelings about it because I've liked this arc as a whole, like up to this point. I've liked it quite a bit, but I thought that this issue was a little weak. I thought the resolution was kind of a bit of a cop-out. Um, His moving everybody forward in time, that thing? Well, that... Okay, I thought that that was really kind of poorly executed and explained, but it was kind of just like a very standard, you know, power of love type ending. <laughs> yeah. he, he literally says hope. He found yeah. hope in yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to echo it. Zach, you just keep talking because it sounds like you and I are on the exact same okay. page here. Yeah, I mean, it was a really nice story, and it gets at the heart of a lot of, like, good Flash ideas, and then it ends, the main story ends with that, you know, very fan-baity picture of all of the various Flashes, many of whom aren't in current continuity. Um and that's all like fine and good, but I think it it just kind of like undercuts the purpose of whatever this is. It it, it again what like what was the purpose of this? this 
Well, that's, that's what I was going to get at, I guess. Like when this came, when this was solicited, I think we were all kind of just like, okay, what's the purpose of this? And, and I think there were like, I, I had two ideas that I think were maybe kind of like the more generous ones, which were, okay, maybe Williamson is trying to set up something for later storylines, kind of like John's did with Green Lantern Secret Origin. Um, or, you know, there just hasn't been a kind of definitive Flash origin in a while. And this is, you know, I, I've mentioned before that it seems like DC is hurting for uh, kind of like evergreen type titles. And so maybe this was a uh, an attempt to, to create one out of this run. Um, and I, I don't really see how this story sets up for anything in any meaningful way um maybe there will be something but i i I just don't see how this finale sets up anything that we didn't already kind of know um and it, it also just doesn't really say anything new about the flash or do it it doesn't do anything special and it all it undercuts all the goodwill that I think the uh, the earlier issues had had built up. That's harsh. I uh, just call it like I see it. All the goodwill, and this is just talking about. Okay, maybe not all, but a lot of it. Yeah, I agree. I think you know. I think the the first several issues of this promised something. Uh, more than this and that we were really enjoying and now and this issue I think what I was expecting was that that being year one this was going to be some sort of definitive uh, flash origin story and for a while it was and then this last issue where like Barry finds the will or the hope to, to, to come through and stop Turtle in a very like Again, a very bog standard way. I feel like Williamson has used this uh, sort of uh, method for def- uh, Barry overcoming his obstacles multiple times already. <laughs> um, I could be wrong about that, but it just feels that way to me. Um, and I just think like like there needed to be something more. and then and then when you tack on this other stuff, to the back end that's really padded out like the offer in this is like six pages long which is way too long um the stuff about the stuff about barry uh meeting this steadfast uh avatar of the still force or whatever and and sort of looking forward into the the conflict that is oncoming is like a good idea except that they don't really tell you any he, he just says like a storm is coming, which is weird because like now Barry caused nine 11 to happen and he's also a Q guy. So <laughs> I'm a little disturbed oh, by that. You but... were, you were holding on to that joke all week. Yeah, I was. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? Like he just keeps saying like a storm is coming, a storm is coming. And you see like vague, you see like v- v- villains that we've already seen. And like, you're not sure how they're going to factor back in or if they even, is he referring to, uh, he's going to have to face Godspeed again, or is he just referring to just this 
generic set of villains that we know he has. You know, there's not really what I'm saying is there's not really any momentum carrying us into whatever the next arc is, which I think it's what Speed Force War or something like that. What is it called? I have no idea. Actually. Um, I don't know. I think we have like a Rogues arc coming up soon. Um, yeah. I mean, if you don't, fo- what I'm saying is, if you don't follow the solicits, because I don't, I I hardly read them, and when I do, I don't remember when it when whatever story is coming. Uh, there's no momentum in this issue that tells you what's coming next, and mm-hmm. so, but but I think that's what it's going for, and so on that level, it fails too. So. Yeah, I, I I was disappointed in this one in a, in a run that I've really otherwise liked and an arc that I've otherwise liked. You know, may I offer a a potential solution to this? I wish you would. So I I really truly think that this arc was put in place. I'm sure this is a story Williamson wanted to do. Blah 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 blah. Whatever. I think that this was put in place to get us past Heroes in Crisis. Mm. And I think that they needed to tell a story because. Wally is obviously a big part of, I mean, like that that mo- the moment where Barry meets Wally for the first time in this in this issue is clearly there for a reason, mm, and that's very nice. That's a nice scene. Yes, and I think that there is going to be a lot of Wally in the last few, not few, the the last you know couple of years of this of this run, if we are believing that is this is a, indeed a true Azrael. You know, 100 issues plus a couple of annuals, um, and so I think that you had to, you had to reestablish a couple of things. You had to reestablish Barry's relationship with Wally because, you know, for if you're just going by the Rebirth special, you know, you see that he remembers Wally, but we still don't know because Wally was erased from the New 52 timeline. We still don't really know their history at all. And so I think that a lot of this was to set up sort of how Wally and Wallace and Barry all fit together in this world. That that was done in, like, one page. So I'm not saying that's the point of this whole arc. I'm not saying that. Uh, I also just do want to point out that February 11th in here, Flash Appreciation Day is the same date as the Flash Appreciation Day from Justice League Unlimited. Mm. So, molto bene on that, Josh Williamson. Um I think in general, this was supposed to basically be a reset point for the last third of this of this run. We keep saying last third that we know is going to stop after 100 issues. Williamson might have 200 issues planned. I don't know. But it just seems like, you know, it seems like this is a good reset point after all the forces to sort of get us to the next big thing in this book, whatever that thing is. Um, and I think that, you know, showing new speedsters... Showing Jay Garrick, showing Jesse Quick, showing Impulse, and Max Mercury, you know, the the Flash of China, showing all these people in this panel, obviously it's fan bait. Obviously we all got excited by this because this is the type of stuff that we get excited about. But Well, I would push back against that because I didn't really get that excited by it because it's the same kind of teasing that we've been getting since, like, Jay Garrick appeared in, like, issue 20. But again, I, I I hate I'm not trying to just be the defender of our boy Williamson here, but when that was introduced, Doomsday Clock was supposed to be a much quicker event. Heroes in Crisis was an issue shorter. 
all of that I feel like all yeah. of that stuff did lengthen this run just because it had to. Maybe, but like I I checked because I wasn't sure, and like Heroes in Crisis ended the same month that this started. Sure. Yeah. I don't. I just think you had to get past this. Wait a second. Well, I guess like ended. They both ended. They both ended like it was a few. This started three weeks before Heroes in Crisis ended. Right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So like, it's not like, I mean, we were already essentially almost done with Heroes in Crisis. I'll also say I think it probably was hopefully getting them past Doomsday Clock also. Maybe, you know, because all these characters do play into that. I, I guess what it comes down to for me is I, I, I found this. I don't think this is the best issue of this run. And again, I, I, I read like three or four issues of this run in a row today. I think that the arc works pretty well. I think that the least effective part of the issue was the Scott Collins part, which is the sort of tease for what's happening next. Um. The Captain Cold stuff was fine. It wasn't really anything. But it's been a while since we've seen Captain Cold, and it does a nice job of sort of reestablishing what the rogues are in this world at this time. Um, so for a functional reason, that's good. And, like, the Scott Collins stuff is the type of stuff you would expect me to eat up. But I really do, I didn't think it was very well done. Um, I would uh, I would agree with that. But, but anyway, I, I thought it was a fine issue. Not my favorite, but I thought I thought it was fine. The Barry Wally thing goes a long way for me, too. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we are going to talk about a non-DC book, which is becoming a thing we do, I guess, on this show. <laughs> uh, but it's certainly the thing we're going to do for the next few weeks because we're going to talk about House of X, the new Jonathan Hickman, Pepe LaRocca, La Raza, I'm sorry, Pepe La Raza. Pepe La Roca, guy I went to high school with. Uh, Pepe La Raza. Um, Pepe La Raza. La Raza, Jesus Christ. Uh, Pepe La Raza uh, issue from Marvel, which is the start of Jonathan Hickman's X-Men run, and we're very excited about it. So we're going to talk about that. So if you have no interest in Marvel Comics, feel free to tune out now. If not, we'll see you in a minute after the break. Hello, podcast listener. I'm Kevin. I'm Jess. And I'm Nick. And we are Make Mine Multiversity a monthly podcast discussing all things Marvel Comics. Each month, we will be discussing Marvel news and looking at some of their major recent comic book or movie releases. We also look at older storylines, character histories, and Marvel's place in the overall comics market. We have a variety of perspectives. The recent Marvel fan. The jaded longtime reader. And the reader who's finally digging into Marvel's back catalog after a decade of avoidance. If you want to know what books made me cry this month, what books made me almost cry this month, and what books I wish would make me feel something. Check out Make Mine Multiversity, a Marvel podcast, the fourth Friday of every month on multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcast, or your podcatcher of choice. And Make Mine Marvel. Multiversity. Multiversity. Well, hello, folks. Welcome to the House of X cast. My name is Brian. With me, as always, are Zach and Vince. We're going to be talking about Jonathan Hickman's X-Men run here at the end of the DC3 cast for the foreseeable future. Uh, we have House of X number one by Hickman and Pepe Larraz, I'll say it correct this time, uh, to discuss tonight. Um, before we get to that, though, boys, what was the last X-Men series you read more than just a couple issues of? I 
I read like the first, uh, first like six to eight issues of uh, Lemire's Extraordinary X Men. I think that was the last one. Vince, what came after the Bendis stuff? That was that. That oh. was that was Lemire. Well, Lemire did that, and then I think it. I think Dennis Hopeless took over all new X Men after that. Oh. And Cullen Bond was doing Uncanny X Men. Okay, you know what? I read, I read the first trade of X Men Yellow, X Men Blue, Jean Grey, and maybe X Force when they when they did that relaunch. Okay, so that was like the Guggenheim Bond. Yep. Jean Grey. I don't. Re- I don't remember who did Jean. Was it the Jean Grey series or was it the X Men Red thing that Tom Taylor did? It was the Jean Grey series, so I think that was hopeless. I think that was hopeless. Yeah, I think you were right. Um, I have the first trade of the Charles Soule Astonishing X Men reboot thing, but I haven't read it. Mm. I read like two issues of X Men Gold and X Men Blue. And that was the last I read. The last run I read with any sort of regularity was the um, the second volume. I don't know if it was the second volume, but it was when Jason Latour took over writing Wolverine and the X Men after Jason Aaron. Was that a new volume? Or was yeah. that just Was that just no? Uh, it was yeah. It was a new volume. Okay, that was that was the last X Men I read. Okay, yeah, I didn't read that. Um, I guess I after. I, I read all of Wolverine and the X-Men and kind of dabbled in Bendis' stuff while it was happening. And then read a bit of Lemire's. And that's pretty much it. So it's been a while for all of us, is what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this is definitely not... This is not like we were all reading 5X books last month. Uh, so no. this is pretty much a fresh start for all of us. But all three of us are pretty big Jonathan Hickman fans. And I do want to say just one one DC-related note here. I don't know if you guys saw one of the interviews he did over the weekend at San Diego Comic-Con. Hickman said that after X-Men, all of his dream projects are at DC. Oh, yeah, baby. I did see that. And I saw that he... I, it might have been in that same interview, I think, that he said... Um, he got pitched at DC, but then when Bendis went over... That's when Marvel reached out to him and basically gave him a blank check to do whatever he wanted. Yeah, which which was kind of the rumor. Again, I think Uncle Rich said something to that effect when it happened. That like Hickman was ready to go at DC and then financials changed at both companies. Mm-hmm. And I think that's. And I, but but I do think that that means that someday we will get Hickman at DC. Oh yeah. It's only it's only a matter of time, whether that be five years, ten years, whatever. You know. I pretty much think that this is going to be the overarching end of Hickman's Marvel work, because I think he's one of the few guys who thinks about ending things. And I yeah. can see him jumping over to DC after this is over. But this this could be five years, you know. Uh, but I don't see him having a sort of fourth big, you know, I mean, he's obviously done lots of Marvel stuff, but the three big ones are his Fantastic Four run, his Avengers run, and now his X-Men run. Yeah. Um, 
fun fact i i think i have read everything that hickman has written at marvel except for uh that legion of monsters one shot he did <laughs> and the shang chi one shot that he did so you're a super fan yeah, you could say that. I even I even read the Nick Spencer issues of Avengers World after ah. Hickman left them. Whoa. So. You're a bad man, Zach. I know. Uh, so um, let's let's just dig into this. Boys, on a scale of uh, 10 to 10, how great is this issue? <laughs> I mean, it's a 10. There's no doubt in my mind. I mean, I want to leave room for improvement, but <laughs> uh, um, I, and in my mind, this is how you do a this is how you do a comic book. I I think that uh, I want you to just gush, Zach. Just man, go for I, it. Well, I well, like I tweeted after I read it that. I would happily pay this much for a single issue on a regular basis that does, that is this good, that is, you know, well crafted and doing something thoughtful and interesting and that is, you know, meaty, takes a little while to read. Um, for, I mean, just for comparison. So the five books that we talked about tonight. I read in about 30 minutes today before the podcast. Following that, I reread House of X. And this is the second time I read it. And it still took me about 20 minutes to get through. Yeah, I mean... To me, there's so much there's more... A, yeah. There's so much more meat on the bone. Exactly, yeah. The value there is not comparable. And, and just conceptually, you know, like conceptually, it just it attempts to do more than like think about some of the books, you know, that's not knocking like a really solid street level book like like Batgirl, right? Batgirl is never going to like shake you to your core with uh, its concept or its ideology, right? <laughs> it, it's it mostly exists to be a, a street level book, right? But. I guess it just takes a writer like Jonathan Hickman, but like, why don't, why don't people aim for storytelling like this a little more often? You know, I mean, do you want to hear my honest, cynical answer? Well, because yeah, go ahead. My answer is that comics like this aren't really good for comics. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're good for us and they are good comics, but you're going to sell way less of this than you would have insert, you know, cheesier way to launch this series ways. Do you think so? I think that this is going to... Well, numbers or money-wise, I don't know what we're talking... I think that this is going to be a, a big thing. I think it will too, but I think that this will lead to... You know what? I'm not even going to say it. I don't want to be negative this week. I want to talk about how good this book is. You can be negative. No, because I, I could see the drop off happening. Yes, that... when 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 people get when your when your average when your average reader 
gets fatigued by the way that they do anything, you know? Yes. And look, so there, that, so then is that investment in quality worth it to Marvel? I get what Brian is saying. Yes. And I'll also say like, you know, there is a fair amount of Hickman bullshit in this issue. Like there's a lot of charts and like, that I love that I eat that right up, but I could see a lot of people being like, I don't need this stuff. I don't want this stuff. I wish if I'm paying for these pages, I want these pages to be full of sequential art and not lists of Omega level mutants. I disagree wholeheartedly with that, but, but I, I could see people not liking that particular Hickman trope because there, there are certain Hickman books that do this stuff that I think do it in an unwarranted way. I feel like this is a warranted way to do this stuff. I guess that's, I mean, I'm clearly like not the, the mainstream comic reader. I, I think what you're saying is true. And the kind of books that keep the industry going, I think are also the kinds of things that are the kind of books that are killing it too. Um, I mean, we've talked about this a lot and Vince, you know, in response to my tweet was like, he brought up the, the point he has mentioned before that DC and Marvel should only publish about 20 books a month, <laughs> which uh, my at the other point I mentioned when I was talking about my uh, uh, LCS event adventure to go pick this up. Um, when I was in there, I saw a guy carrying in his hand probably about 30 books just from that week. That's insane. I, I know, I know, and I and I thought like, but we why? were we were once kind of that guy. If not I would fully never, that guy, we were. I mean, yes, okay, yes. I I did not have the finances to be able to do that but yeah i was um but like i don't think that's sustainable and i think anyone who and maybe this isn't fair maybe i'm not being maybe i'm not being fair if you get joy from this that's fine it's like it's your money and your life but i think anyone who would really sit and reflect on what they are spending their money on will probably find some level of dissatisfaction with it if they really sit and think about why they're doing it and what they're getting. Yes. Sure. Whereas with this, and and I understand, like, you don't have to like this. Hickman's not for everyone. But I think the concept behind it of a, of a big, air quotes, important, well-crafted story... It's a, I mean, it's a quantity versus quality argument. Can, sure. can I su- can I suggest something to you that ties this back into DC real quick before we actually talk about this issue? Sure. Yeah. Did you guys know? Did you have, have either of you read the DC solicits that just came out? I actually have yeah no. Okay. The five dollar giant sized issues that are going to LCSs now that are being distributed by Diamond are in they're starting in that most recent solicit okay there's like a dozen of them don't you think that i could be way off here because i know nothing about publishing you know i'm just i'm purely speculating but don't you think that if you had a main line of books that was like 20 books a month but they were all like five or six dollars, but they were longer, really high quality teams, well thought out concept. 
once a month release. Don't you think that you could do a lot within those parameters with main stories, backups, interesting artists that you wouldn't normally put on a monthly book, whatever, whatever. And then for the guy that Zach sees with 30 books in his hands, you're releasing these because what, what Zach is saying is this person just walks into the LCS and says, give me one of everything. Hmm. Essentially. Don't you think you're with less effort by putting out those, those $5 ones that have, you know, a small new story in it and then a bunch of reprinted material. That seems like that could be your moneymaker that most people could ignore. And that would, that could bolster your profit and then from your 20 main books that are quote unquote very high quality at this point very well considered don't you think that you could somehow navigate that and and have really good sales on those because it's less of an investment for your readers to begin with you could build like a dedicated hey i only need to buy a couple books a month and be really satisfied but then you have all this other material that and you could still do like black label and mini and you know non main universe stuff but what i'm saying is like i'm with zach everything should be like hickman's x-men <laughs> right now and i feel like in the long run that's better for them too because we already know that dc's trying to cut back on the amount of books that they put out every month we heard that with the restructuring when when they got rid of uh you know some of their some of their mid-level staff right below below the editorial Mm -hmm. the art direction and all that stuff. They came in and they said, we're trying to pare back our line a little bit. Well, like th this to me is the way to do that, I guess. But here's I don't, the thing. I'm probably I, just talking on my ass though. No, I, I don't disagree with that, but I just think that there's, there's a fundamental brokenness to the direct market. For sure. That I mm -hmm. think is much harder to fix than, than we're giving, <laughs> we're giving credit for here. I um, think you're right, but the, you're but, but the, right. shot, the yeah. shotgun approach is not working either, you know, so. No, but here's the thing. I think there there are certain, and again, we got to talk about this issue in a minute, but. Yeah, yeah I, sorry. I, that's all right. I think that there there are certain sort of benchmarks of success that are built into the direct market that everybody else just kind of, like for a long time, I remember Kelly Sudeconic telling me this once when she was on the Hour Cosmic, that like the that the direct market literally measures in Batman. Like mm. the Batman is the measuring stick for all other books. And so you talk about other books as being fractions or multiples of Batman. <laughs> and like there is just, if there's enough of that built up, it's very hard to then change the way of thinking. If everybody at Marvel is thinking about, we have to sell X amount of issues a month to hit Y threshold and do Z dollars, to suddenly change that paradigm is way harder than I think we're giving credit for. I also think that there's a certain amount of reality to the fact that we are not the ideal comic readers out there. And that I think that guy Zach saw in his, in the LCS is much more of what DC would want to cultivate than us. Well, yeah, definitely. And so... They want to produce as many books as possible that as many people can buy so that they can get 
I mean, th- that guy probably spent, spends more a week than we spend a month in a comic store. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think that's probably, you know, fair. And so if there's the way to build more of them is not to do what we're talking about. The way to build more of us is to do what we're talking about. And I don't think they want more of us. I don't think you can build more of that person than already exists, though. Oh, I don't I don't disagree with that, but I think they're going to keep trying. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, when you get into that, then it's like, gosh, this is this industry is so manipulative and preying on addiction and and weird, uh, um, you know, like. Yeah, that's just uh, that's really gross to me. <laughs> but do you think it's wrong? Yeah, I mean, uh, no, no. Do, yes, do, I do. Do, th- do you think our assessment is wrong? No, I don't. I think that that's right. I think they do want those kinds of people. Um, but it's in the short term, it it yields some degree of success, but in the long term, is really unsustainable. And uh, yeah. I mean, to be fair, we've been hearing that the direct market is dying for as long as we've been buying comics. But it kind of has been. Like, there have been these injections that that really bolster things up, but then it drops off again and you get diminishing returns. DC's been trying to catch up to Marvel for over a decade now and can't marvel from what it seems is really just only holding on because like comics aren't comics are off in a corner that are or at least you know kind of um allowed to just like keep doing its thing because it's a idea generator essentially an ip generator ip yeah an ip generator well, I said idea just because, like, the IP already exists. It's um, sure. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. Um, like it's it's there to generate concepts that will then feed into the movies, and we've seen that. I mean, we're already getting Jane Foster Thor three years after that was created. Yeah. I would love to have a longer conversation about this, but let's talk about House of X. <laughs> okay, yeah, let's do it. So, um, I don't think we have to go beat by beat through this. I think there are just questions and interesting things we're going to want to talk about. So why don't we just each go around, Vince will start with you, and just mention like a topic you want to talk about. Oh, God. Um... <laughs> Where do you even start? Um I guess I guess let's start with the flowers. So the conceit here is that uh, the mutants have built a home on Krakoa, the living island of X-Men lore, and uh, their bargaining chip now in the global socio-political marketplace, I suppose are these flowers that they're generating pills off of that humans can use to cure brain disease. Uh, a super antibiotic. A super antibiotic, extend their life by five years, and, and that's their bargaining chip. And 
to me, that's, I mean, that's fascinating. How do you, how do you go again? The thing about the X-Men is that there's lots of, uh, lots of parallels to real life and you can, you can argue like politically, socially, you can argue how one-to-one they are. Of course, they're not one-to-one. We're talking about superpowered people, right? But I mean, here, here now the, the mutants have a resource and how they relate to everybody else on earth is going to be how they use that resource as a leverage. Right. And so I think immediately you have a hook that is not only visually fascinating because lots of the art in this issue and in the promos leading up to it surrounded around plant life and flowers, you know, it's, it's kind of your, uh, guiding light or something you know it's like a, a visual aesthetic that that's going to inform this story um and so it works on that level but it also works as like a plot bargaining chip it's going to work as a, a point of contention between the mutants and and everyone else and i think that's just such a that's such a hickman thing and it's such a perfect thing to build this all around i love it Okay, Zach, what's your next thing? Um, let's talk about... Okay, I, this is a very like general thing, but it's kind of building a little bit off of what Vince said, too. Um, when I read this, I thought that it felt very familiar. Like, I had read this type of X-Men story many times but I, I don't actually know that I have. It, it feels like the most logical X-Men story. Does that make sense? Yes. It, it, to the point where it's like, I think, I think actually people have done a lot of these types of things. You know, there was Magneto on Genosha. Is that what it's called? No, that's the Gen- planet from Star Wars. Is that right? Genosha. 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 Okay. You're thinking of Geonosis. Geonosis. <laughs> Gosh. Okay, yeah. Um, so there was that. Um, we've even had them, we've had them using Krakoa as like a, a he, he was like on the, he was the school grounds in, in Wolverine and the X-Men. Um, you know, we, I feel like Xavier's energy here is very similar to his, his energy in the beginning of new X-Men. Um, mm-hmm. This doesn't feel unfamiliar, but it, it's just also never been done this way either. And that kind of blows my mind a little bit. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about how Hickman in the first issue here presents a pretty clear argument both for and against mutants. What I mean by that is, or not, not against mutants against sort of the stance that they're taking. Like, I think that, you know, obviously X-Men have been a political allegory for a million years, right? Since they started, they've been an allegory like Vince was saying. And I think that there's a lot of things in this that you can easily read into topics like reparations and um you know just how we how we treat other people right and 
yet Hickman gives almost no indication outside of a few very sort of polite lines of dialogue from Scott Summers that anybody in mutant land is giving two shits about non-mutants at this point. Like, that the scene where, where Scott comes through the portal to collect Sabretooth is such a politically interesting scene. Like, everyone there knows him. They're all saying, like, hey, Scott, what's up? And he congratulates Ben on his on his marriage. And then he basically says, like, I'm going to take Sabretooth now. Bye. And they kind of push back. And he, he pushes back a little bit, but then he, he relents. And he says, you know, we'll deal with this at another time. And then he basically straight up tells the Richards family in so many words, like, your son doesn't belong with you. <laughs> Probably that favorite scene of the issue, I think. And it's like, it's chilling because on one hand, you know Scott's right about everything he's saying. You know that, like, he says, like, you know, did you expect us to just lie down forever? And Sue says no. And you know he's right. But you also were so accustomed to seeing the Fantastic Four as as heroes that when when Scott offers a much more militant position to that, it's like our natural inclination, at least it's my natural inclination, to buck against that in a superhero comic. Even though politically and ideologically, I agree with Scott in this situation. It's just, am I making sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's ominous. And there's a lot of that in this issue. There is. There is. Um, There's a point where one of the ambassadors says to Magneto, like, do you know what you sound like? And he says, like, yes, and I'm very happy to be sounding that way. Yeah. You know, it's 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 it is ominous. Ominous is a good word, Zach. Um, and you know, this is a very political comic, and that's been a, a part of the discourse too. Um, but I don't think it's political in a heavy-handed way or a ham-fisted way. You, I mean, do you all disagree with that? No, I think you're right. I think it's very. I think it's very real. Yeah, I mean, it's it's playing upon essential con. I mean, the thing that the thing that people who say they don't want comics to be political need to come to grips with is that like we can't escape from politics in our daily lives. And I'm not just talking about the guy in office. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about in chief. Yeah. Yep. I'm talking about, you know, essentially everything that happens to us. on a day-to-day basis, everything that informs our life and our culture. And that is what Hickman's X-Men looks to play with, right? Like we already know that things that happen in our country and in our relationship to other countries, allegiances who we consider enemies, quote unquote, oftentimes comes down to resources, right? That's what we're going to be playing with here, you know. Uh, identity, mutant identity, plays a little bit with that. You've got the one—I uh, forget which one it was—but one of the one of the Stepford Cuckoos says uh, that was my human name. I'm thinking about changing it to a mutant name, you know. Yeah. Uh, which that is obviously political, but it's, it's again, it's very real. You can say that that's ham-fisted, but like that's literally something that people throughout history have reckoned with, you know? Yeah. 
So why can you not like? Why would you not put that in an X Men comic? You know. So. So yeah, I think I, I think it is political. I think it's very political. I don't think it. I don't think it beats you over the head because nobody is like standing around making speeches for a, one political yeah. side or another. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's it's not political in the way, and I don't mean this negatively because I liked this comic too, but like the Lois Lane comic from a few weeks ago. Sure. It's not like that. Right. Did this? Yes, you're right. Absolutely. Vince, next topic. Oh, God, I got to think of another one. To, okay. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. This is uh, hyper nerd shit, but I love it. I don't take it too serious. Like, this is going to cause fights, I imagine, on the internet. But I'm not going to be in any of those. I just like that Hickman did it. And I'm talking about the Omega level mutant page, <laughs> the, the data that, and I love, so like going down the list, Bobby Drake, Iceman, Omega level temperature manipulation in the negative, meaning that this is as powerful as a mutant can be in the area of temperature manipulation. And right. Hickman comes out and so he spells that all out for you. It's and like he- a formula that you can use to, inform yourself about these characters, right? What were you going to say? And he even says, like, this does not mean that Iceman is as powerful as Jean Grey. It it means that in this specific power set, he is the most powerful. Right. And some awful nerds on the internet are going to be arguing about this. but, But why I love it is because I love it for its subtle storytelling elements. The first thing that my eyes were drawn towards were was uh, David Holler, Legion, Omega Power, Power Manifestation, Alliance Unknown. <laughs> so right there, it's like, I got a beat on that. When is Legion going to show up? I'm right. going to flip out whenever that happens because I'm waiting for it now, you know? And that's that's where, like, some people look at these and they go, oh, that's just a chart. That's just some, like, charty nerd BS that... Hickman does, you know, but no, there's, there's like places that your mind goes in the story because of these things. Right. Same with Franklin Richards being a Omega level reality manipulator and his Alliance is human. And it's the only one on the list that's human, you know? And and it's the only one that's highlighted red, which is a recurring thing throughout these infographics. There are things that are highlighted in red there mm-hmm. are particular issues of the series that are highlighted in red in the reading order. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, oh, it's just so good. You get the impression with every Hickman comic that no one has thought about any other comic you've read as much as Hickman has thought about the comics that he's writing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Zach, give us another topic here. Um, this is a, this is a, really slight thing um, and kind of dumb but of the kind of um, important X-Men that we see in this issue I I feel like Hickman and, and uh, Lorez have chosen the best the best costume from their history yes 
and there's no like clear de- like definition there or like you know defining era that they're going for like Jean Grey is in her like really old Marvel girl look whereas like Magneto is in his very like most recent modern look and then um like Cyclops is in this weird amalgamation of his classic and and new but then you have people like Mystique and and um Sabretooth that are like straight classic 90s animated series style um i i really i really enjoyed that yeah i completely agree uh, i want to talk about the, the role of magneto in this for a second because like one of the things that i loved about x-men comics when i started reading comics was that magneto was both the x-men's greatest enemy and also someone who winds up on their side about half the time. <laughs> and just from somebody who grew up reading like Batman and Superman comics, that was really unusual, right? That, that was an unusual thing. And so the fact that Charles chose him as the ambassador to meet with foreign dignitaries is really interesting because the, the conflict between them has always been one has a peaceful solution one has a violent solution. And to give Magneto the role of the peaceful, to give him a peaceful role here, and to let him essentially be the bad cop to Xavier's good cop, I think is really inspired. And again, this mm-hmm. isn't the first time we've seen this sort of thing before, but to me this is the most clear version of that we've seen before. It also shows you that things are very different than they've been before. Because to let Magneto be the the ambassador here is just such a uh it says so much about where his and charles relationship is right now and uh yeah it's just it's really fucking good yeah can i can i build on that of real course quick? Yeah, yeah go for it i i wonder i i love the role the way it is right now but i wonder how much of it it i wonder how much of it charles realizes because there's something about the way that 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 Charles is presented throughout this wearing Cerebro on his head all the time. You, you never see his face. Um, he comes off as aloof, maybe even a little sinister. But the thing I think is like, okay, am, am I bringing that to what I traditionally think of when, you know, Hickman likes to have villains cover their face. Villains traditionally do wear, and I'm not saying... I know that Hickman considers Xavier the hero, but are we supposed to think that there is something a little bit sinister about the way he's comporting himself right now? You know, I'll take it a Con- step further. Sure. Are we sure that's that's Charles Xavier under Cerebro? Well, I think we'll I think we're gonna get to that, but I'm I'm gonna say yes. <laughs> I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say yes. I'm I'm gonna can, say it is. Can I get Can I get to that, or or do you well, have more? Well, the only other thing I wanted to say was. Do, do we think that do we think that as ambassador Mag, magneto is doing what he's supposed to do or are we seeing him slowly going rogue a little bit while charles is in this sort of okay see, aloof state i do not think so uh, like if you think that's a power play by the mutants in general well yes and no i i, I see this as so if if Charles is who we is who we think he is, right? 
and if Magneto is truly been appointed ambassador, like to me, this is this is the closest thing to a compromise we have seen from Charles's view of mutants' relationship with humans and Magneto's view of it. Right? Magneto always said, "Like we're going to win this war. We're going. We're the higher evolutionary animal here. They are." they're going to have to contend with us sooner or later. And Charles was always like, no, we have to get through this together, right? The way we do this is together. This is more or less Charles saying, well, we're not going to be doing this together arm in arm anymore. We're not going to stand in each other's way, but the time for mutants to just be a piece of mankind. And I don't, I don't mean that genetically. I mean like a piece of, of man's culture that's mm-hmm. over, and and now mutants are doing their own thing. And to me, that's a you know again we we all watched this Hickman interview before, and he called both Magneto and, and Charles pragmatists. And I think that for Magneto to to have this, as you were talking about Vince, this resource to trade with the world gives them more power than they've ever had before. And so. You you tell Magneto like here's the deal we're gonna have our own society with our own culture we're gonna make humanity dependent on us because that's the other sort of implication here is right once they get these drugs they're gonna need to keep getting these drugs these drugs can't just stop coming at some point so we're gonna make them dependent on us and to me that's that's enough of Magneto bait that I could see him falling in line with this. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. Zach, you want to get to the uh, you want to get to the rumors, don't you? The rumors. Yeah. Okay. Not even I wouldn't even say rumors necessarily as much as speculation. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So. um, Xavier looks a lot like the maker. Mm hmm who is a character that Hickman has used extensively. Um, He is the ultimate universe, Reed Richards, who is evil, um, currently mucking about over in Donny Cates' Venom. Um, And for any other writer, I would think like, oh, that's just a weird coincidence, but Hickman doesn't really do coincidences that often. Like it, it, it's probably intentional either to be an obvious red herring or as something else. And I would probably dismiss it entirely if it weren't for the opening two pages. To um, me, my X Men. That part. Yeah, the to me, my X Men, where there's like a couple things going on. One, you have these like people being birthed out of pods. One that is very Cyclops esque, mm-hmm. and um, which is both um, kind of this this whole thing feels like very um, referential to the beginning of his Avengers run with the the um, the people on Mars, the garden, um, the garden, yeah, and then also his helmet in this it seems like it's shaped differently. 
than it is in other parts of the issue and it's a lot closer to the helmet that the maker wears and then this is a really deep cut that i never would have thought of but i i, I was reading someone talking about it and in earth x are you guys you guys are familiar with earth x uh the vaguely it's like a i think it was written by jim kruger it had a lot of uh uh illustrate like uh artwork done by alex ross i think he handled part of the art and it was like an elseworlds type marvel tale um and in that there was the idea that reed richards could stretch his brain to resemble xavier's and use cerebro <laughs> wow. that's insane i know but that's exactly wow. what the hickman would love yeah 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 yeah, it is that's really convincing but i don't think that's it i don't think it is either and and the one one other thing that i want to say that this same article highlighted and i really don't agree with this but i think it's an interesting idea um is in that scene where um uh gene is bringing that that young mutant in to krakoa and um xavier like tells gene welcome home and she kind of has like a tear that's kind of like beginning to roll down her cheek this article highlighted a possibility that this is kind of a not a happy page that it's a sinister page that like xavier is manipulating everyone and that she is like fighting against it Mm -hmm. so Playing off that, I need to ask a question that is, that is a little bit in the weeds here, but I have a very specific reason for asking it. Sure. Was there ever a resolution to those time-displaced young X-Men? Yeah, they all got sent back. So this is not young Jean Grey? No. Even though she's dressed like young Jean Grey? Yes, this is this is Jean Grey who... This is old Jean Grey that came back... In, I know there was that Matthew Rosenberg Phoenix miniseries. I don't know if that's when she came back. Okay, but it was around that time. And then that, like that Dennis Hopeless Jean Grey series, X Men Red, all of that has been this Jean Grey. Okay, okay. Now the reason supposedly, (laughs) sure. Now one of the things that I'm. that I was thinking about this is one of the reasons I think it actually is Charles under Cerebro is that I can't imagine certain mutants not being aware it wasn't him. Gene being like the primary one. Like you would think that Gene would have been able to get inside of his head and realize that's not him. Now, maybe the fact that he's wearing Cerebro protects him from that. Um, but like say, ditto Magneto, like Eric and Charles have been, associates for so long you would think he would know if it wasn't really him you know if it was all new mutants if it was all just non-mutants all of that i'd be much more willing to think that maybe okay maybe that's not really xavier but i can't see how that's the case with with the mutants that are there not being onto something unless they all just want to see this so badly there there's one other thing um from recent continuity that I read a little bit about um, is that apparently 
Charles has a piece or or some somehow he is like mentally contaminated by Shadow King. That happened in Sewell's Astonishing X-Men. Now you're talking. Yeah. And Hickman has kind of mentioned in interviews that he is like not opposed to building on like current continuity. Like a lot of his Fantastic Four built right off of Mark Millar and Brian Hitch's Fantastic Four that preceded it. And that feel, I mean, that's any a, a um, dangling plot thread that has not been picked up since Sewell left it. So I would be really surprised if Hickman doesn't tug on that. Yeah, that would give cause to bring in Legion and see. And then I, I guess my take on it is a lot simpler in some ways, but also I think about the meta text a little more. If, if that's not Charles Xavier, then a lot of the themes of this first issue that you're launching an entirely new status quo for the X-Men off of are just not as effective then. And, and then, and, and I'm saying that, and I'm wondering how much value is there is in even thinking that because what's it matter if, if like when I read the story, I thoroughly enjoyed it and said it was a 10 out of 10. What's it matter if six issues down the road, we find out that it was, let's say ultimate Reed Richards. It still doesn't take away the way I felt about that issue when I read it. Right. right. But, right. but I just think like if you're, if you're establishing this X-Men status quo, Xavier is like the cornerstone of it. So to have that not really be him, I feel like it is too obvious. I feel like it's too obvious. I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think, I think it is him because I think if it's not him, we're supposed to feel uncomfortable because of this. And I think it's a lot more interesting that we feel uncomfortable because it is the good guy doing it. And then mm-hmm. if we find out later that it's a bad guy, then our discomfort was justified. Yes. And I, I don't think that's a... I may be wrong. I don't feel like that's a story that Hickman is interested in telling. No, and I think that he is a smart enough writer to know that when he put... He, that, to know that it kind of looks like the maker... But also he has Hickman has taste, right? And so I think he just likes the image that is created by a hero or a villain wearing a helmet that covers them when they they otherwise wouldn't be wearing that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We don't see Charles like that. The fact that we never see him without that helmet in this issue that that's having an effect on us that Hickman is intending, you know? Um, I think he's too smart to go. And the other, the other thing is that he said that this, you know, doesn't, it doesn't play off of his event. Now I know he could be lying. Obviously he said that he's lied about things, you know, but I really don't think that if, if, if he's relaunching the X-Men, I don't think he's going to go like, all right, I'm going right back into my 
Avengers uh, meta narrative. You know, it I would be weird. I think eventually more of that will seep into it. There will be bits and pieces because how could there not be? We already got Fantastic Four in this. You know, yes. Yeah, we got Fantastic Four. We got um, AIM is playing a big role again. Um, yeah. I got the Garden on Mars. Yeah, yeah. And I, I feel like that's going to be important. You know, Soul's Hammer, Soul's Anvil, that stuff gets referenced. Um, it It's going to be there. And, you know, I'm kind of curious when we get back around to um, Sam uh, and bobby from his from his avengers Mm. um cannonball and sunspot is that right yeah um you know they're going to be carrying things over franklin richards is going to be carrying things over um so i'm glad you mentioned that zach there's there's a character that i think is going to wind up being super important here we haven't seen yet and I think that this is going to be the character that if there, if Hickman does want to unite all of his stories into sort of one larger narrative, to me, there is only one choice of character who's appeared on the periphery of all three of these. And that's Namor. Ooh, I didn't even think about that. Oh, like, man. Because, you know, Namor is in the Illuminati. Uh-huh. He's a mutant. And he's a known associate of the Fantastic Four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To mm-hmm. me, he's going to be the linchpin of this. That, like, that when I said before, I think it was before we started recording, maybe, that, like, this is going to be the end of Hickman's DC run. Or, sorry, Marvel run before he goes over to DC <laughs> eventually. Like, I feel like Namor is the guy who's going to be at the center of that final whatever it is. Ooh, that's good. I like it. I mean,. We could we could gush about this issue all day. The best part is that next week we get Powers of Ten, which is the second part of this, uh, like new status quo. And I I was purposely, personally, keeping ignorant about all this stuff. I didn't want to know anything about the issues until I read them. So I hadn't been read. I hadn't been getting myself too hyped. The only thing I had read was the announcement of from San Diego of all the series that are spinning out of this. Mm-hmm. And those sound dope, and uh, some of them sound really bizarre in good ways. Uh huh. Um, so I'm just looking forward to writing this, this this run every week. You know, just this is gonna be the most Marvel I've read. Gosh, twenty five years. <laughs> I'm not yeah. even joking. Twenty years at least. Well, and and. I, I hate to like circle back to our original conversation, but um, you know, just talking about the way this line is being handled, this isn't the first time that we've had something like this um, where you, I mean, we, you can, the entire X line has been slimmed down to, to this and then to six books. And then we know that there are going to be like other waves later, but this is the easiest time to jump on these books. And if you wanted, you could just, only read x-men books and you would have a full robust line to to pick up and follow and to me that seems like a really good thing 
and and like I said, I know we've had this kind of thing before with other things. You know, the Justice League line kind of did it recently. Um, we've had this, but again, maybe it's just because of my interest in this. It, it seems like this is just being handled so well. I Can you guys think of any other relaunch that's kind of been this concise and easy to just mainline? Uh... Well, I think what makes this different is if it's almost any other team, like a team is the wrong word for it, but like, so because there's pretty much only, there's only a handful of mutant characters that get their own solo series at one time. Usually it's Wolverine, and then lately it's been a second Wolverine, whether it's X-23 or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's there's very rarely long, ongoing series for mutants, right? Would you say that, that that's true? That's fair, yeah. Okay. It's a lot of, like, miniseries and things. Right. So, like, if you were to do an Avengers relaunch or a Justice League relaunch or, you know, a... Um, uh, I guess those are the two best examples. Like, it will be hard to have Superman on the Justice League and to stop his book and start it new again. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, yeah. Like this that, ooh. This particular I, the Superman lineup. line is... Sorry? I was going to say the Superman line is probably the closest thing I can think of in recent memory. The Bendis Superman line? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's yeah. fair. But again, like the, the scope of that is one character and his family. Mm-hmm. This is just so much bigger. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think there's too many things like the. You know, it's weird. Um, like, Marvel, I feel, has more divisions in that way, right? Like, DC is very much about. DC has teams, right? But they're mostly about their individual icons, right? Whereas Marvel, the Avengers is like always one corner. The Spidey books are always another corner. DC kind of has that a little bit, but you never have like a line. I mean, the the idea of a Green Lantern line is like over now. The idea of a Wonder Woman line is nothing. You know, there's a Batman line. There's like a mini Superman line. That's kind of it. You know, whereas the X-Men are almost their entire, like you could make just a publishing imprint out of the X-Men themselves, you know, Um, which they basically are, I guess. Yeah. The the last time I felt like this, I think where there was this much meat to chew on and, and it all seemed like it was going to be good that I, that I had this same feeling of excitement, uh, was when all those bat books were relaunching uh prior to flashpoint so like batman and robin cowl stuff yeah 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 yep yep batman and robin batgirl uh the red robin stuff uh batwoman Um, and tech batwoman Mm -hmm. tech yeah tech didn't relaunch but you know it was part of that it was part of that whole feeling you know um and then i want to say like at a similar time, there was Gotham City Sirens and Streets of Gotham, maybe. Yeah, that's right. That was right in there together. Yeah, it didn't all. I don't think it all relaunched at once, but that that general 
overview of things. You the, know, every, the, everything was the kind Batman of Batman reborn banner. I think yeah, is what it was. I was just, I was just there gonna you say, go. There you go. Say the banner like really tied everything together at that point. Yeah, just like the rug. Yep. <laughs> tied the room together. Of course. Uh, yeah, that's the last time that I can remember feeling this energized. And I was talking to Walt on uh, a website. And uh, <laughs> and we were like, I think I told him, like, the last time I felt like, like, I feel like a kid again. I The last time I felt like this was when I picked up that first issue of Batman and Robin. That's what this is to me. So here is the sort of the last question that I'm going to pose. You guys are free to pose another one or two if you want. But how long do we think this is going to last for? And do we think that it's going to be able to maintain its purity? By that, I mean, are we going to start seeing X-Men characters popping up elsewhere? Like, how long How long will this be able to be your one-stop shop for X-Men stuff? That's a really good question. Um, as far as, like, the purity of the line, in terms of, like, this feeling like its own cordoned off, universe that I, I i give that maybe a year um i give them maybe like two or three waves of books mm -hmm. i i have a good answer Say it. there's no way of knowing a timeline but in your heads like when do you think the X-Men MCU movies coming. 2024? 20, 22. 22. 22. 22? Wow. Let's, I, split I think... the, let's split the difference and say 23. Sure. I, okay, sure. So this Hickman thing is going to last, I would think, not necessarily with Hickman maybe, but like this status quo or whatever this is, is going to run into 2023. Whenever the... Whenever the mutant mcu movie comes out because at that point somebody at marvel or somebody at disney is going to be like hey we got to get we got to get this more lined up to what we're mm. doing i i could see this kind of culminating in a big event around that time sure yeah i think if we got so so that's what i'm so essentially what i'm saying is three to four years I think that's pretty good for like a status quo in the modern landscape of superhero comics. I think if we got to five years, that would be that would be unusual. That would be something special. It could happen. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but that'd be out of the ordinary for sure. His um, Hickman's Avengers run lasted about three years. Yeah. I think three years is about where it's going to be. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that you're going to see, let's call it the first year where it'll be totally pure. The second year, you'll see start, some of it starts to start to bleed out into something else. And I think the third year is going to be very much the leading up to whatever that next big event is. Mm-hmm. And I hope that that's it. I hope, because, you know, look, as much as we love to talk about these nice long runs that go on forever, I would also much rather have a 
a sort of contained universe here that I can keep up with for a short amount of time and be really happy with than mm -hmm. a sprawling thing with no end in sight. Did you hear what Hickman himself said about that? No. He said something like, there is an ending in mind, and we essentially have three acts. They're not acts of equal length, and they're not fully fleshed out. So, like, the House of X and the Powers of Ten going into the launch of all these new books is, like, act one. Okay. And then he said act two is a is a status quo more than, like, a defined act. And that status quo could go on for as long as Marvel would deem it, you know. And and then they've got Act Three, which is which is the ending, which he has in mind, which is of indeterminate length, but like he knows how it's going to end. So he essentially said like there's this we there's this wild status quo in the middle that they could literally spend as much time as Marvel will give them right. on. And I think that's just. That is such a, a keen way of saying it. You know, I think that's a really. What is this you sent me? <laughs> so I, I just sent in the chat. Uh, apparently, Brian Bendis is on Late Night with Seth Meyers tonight. And this was tweeted out by one of the late night writers. This is the full Legion of Superheroes lineup. Oh, my God. <laughs> breaking, breaking, breaking. That looks great. Yeah. It looks so good. I'm sure there was polite applause. <laughs> exactly. At, yeah. At late Probably, night yeah. We got Monel. <laughs> Brainiac Five. <laughs> Lightning Lad. <laughs> Tinia Wasso. <laughs> Musical guest. Matter Eater Lad. <laughs> And your host, Jonathan Kent. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Kent. I can't think of the SNL music, so I've got the old Conan music playing through my head right now. <laughs> Jonathan Kent's doing the he's doing the string dance right now. <laughs> when he cuts it. Of course. Of course. House of X, guys. House of X. This, As many hey, have said, more like House of Sex. DC, this could have been us, but you're playing. This this Legion, this could have been this could have been Hickman. Yeah. <laughs> Someday. Someday. Although I think he said he really wanted to do Teen Titans. Oh, I'm all for that. Give me that. Pump it Inject. into my veins. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm I'm so excited about this. I. Uh, and here's the thing, I know there are folks out there who listen to our podcast who read DC exclusively and are, are probably not even hearing this. So who am I saying it to? But it doesn't matter. More good comics is good for everyone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You should be rooting for good comics all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And if you if you listen to our podcast and trust our opinions at all and are still listening, um, you know, maybe not right now. Maybe the cost is a little prohibitive. It kind of it, it is. But 
pick this up and trade when it comes out. There will be a Comixology sale that will sell this for far below value in a uh, year. It will be a it will be a dollar an issue eventually, because um, that's Marvel is much more generous with its sales than DC is. Um, yeah, pick this up, give it a shot, or you know, right now there's a Hickman sale going on on Comixology. Go buy the first couple volumes of Fantastic Four, and if you don't like it, then I don't know. Don't I, I give you permission to never listen to us again? I don't give that permission. So um... <laughs> I think you should, no matter what. So should never listen to us again. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. No, you do. well, as as usual, Brian is somewhere in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. Should we even bother looking ahead to next week besides saying that Powers of Ten is next week? Powers of Ten is next week. With R.B. Silva art, man. That's on the Hickman list, of course. Um, I will say, though, next week is a really small DC week, so we won't have this like three-hour podcast we had tonight. Uh, it's probably more like two hours by the time it's edited down. But next week we have American Carnage, the finale of that. Ooh. We Ooh. have... Part two of Batman Last Night on Earth. Ooh. We have Batman Secret Files number two. I couldn't tell you for all the money in the world when Secret Files one came out, but <laughs> nope. We have number two here. Uh, we also have the finale of the Batman Who Laughs. Although that might have been pushed back a week. It was initially scheduled. I'm not sure. Don't hold I, me to that. I think I think I saw Snyder tweet that they were coming the same week. Okay. Like um, just like just a couple days ago. Sure. Sure. We have the Dear Justice League All Ages book. We have uh, Green Lantern Annual number one. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> Justice League Dark Annual number one. Red Hood Outlaw Annual number one that we won't be reading. <laughs> and that's it. That's that's it for next week. So it's a small week. So I, we're pretty much going to be discussing American Carnage, Last Night on Earth, Secret Files, Laughs. And that's it. And Green, Green Lantern Green, Annual. Green, Green Lantern. That's five. That- yeah. That that Green Lantern annual, no no Liam Sharp art, but Giuseppe Camincoli and Guillaume March. Ooh, yeah. is March just the cover, or does he have interiors too? Mm, that's a good question. I don't know. I'd have to double check that. He definitely did the cover. Well, either I way, think... we get our Camincoli. Did I just kill the podcast with y- Italian? Yeah, one of these days you're gonna pay for your slates of my people. The things you say about the Polish people when when you're not recording are literally uh, nothing. <laughs> literally I blush nothing. every time. <laughs> uh, well, until next time, you can you're back to being able to find two thirds of us on Twitter because I am if Ryan needs a nap and Zach is back, baby. I am back at Wilker Fox. Maybe I don't know. Maybe he didn't I want exist. you to know that. Oh, some, it's fine. Some people I'm don't back. want people to know that. No, they're... he he announced on Twitter he's back. So okay. all right. And if and if I unfollowed you, I didn't really. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to remove it. <laughs> I'm just saying some people don't want to know. Don't want don't want other people to know. Well, that and... they're. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why if you want to follow Vince on Twitter. You can find him starting fights with anybody who doesn't like Hickman's X-Men run, uh, I guess, at your local comic shop. Maybe, <laughs> maybe on the CBR forums. Uh, definitely on 
boutique dating websites like Farmers Only, Catholic Match, um, and any other. I, I only talked to Jeff Darrow on Farmers, Farmers Only. Oh, okay, I understand. So, anyway, that's it for us. Enjoy your DC and Hickman books, and we'll talk to you guys next time. I'm blocked by Joker's trick. What? You're seriously blocked? Yeah. (laughs) What did you say? I have no idea. Wait. (laughs) Why did Jokey block you, though? I don't know. What did you say to him? Maybe you sent out a spam thing to some followers? Did you guys get anything? No. No. And, like, wouldn't I probably see that, like, in my outbound DMs? Unless whoever I, did it and deleted it. I imagine your DMs are so full of people sliding into it that you lose track of what's in there. But... No. Nope. Hang on a minute. Think about how in Power Rangers Zeo there's an extended mystery about the identity of the Gold Ranger. You're led to believe it's Billy, but it's actually a Trinitarian alien, then it's Jason. I imagine the mystery of Joker's trick identity playing out similarly. He blocked you for that. You think so? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I did no, say I... that, but that was before he died. <laughs> I don't know, Zach. I don't think so. I think this is all a big mix-up. Oh. To me, though, this is maybe the funniest thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. Because <laughs> of all the people in the world to block, Zach has never said anything offensive. And <laughs> he's the good boy and the bad boy of the DC3 cast. Yep. And... Uh, and yet he's the one who suffers the uh, who suffers the, 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 hands, the Joker's trick. <laughs> well, I'm gonna get you unblocked though. Do you know who Joker's trick is? It's Vince. Remember? <laughs> no, is it it's, really Vince. No, it's just an algorithm. It's not okay, just okay, but Walt knows who it is. It, it it is an algorithm created by some user on here. By who? Let me hang on. Hang on. <laughs> Who is it? Just, <laughs> Walt knows, and I forgot to ask him when we did manga yeah, club. Walt knows, but like, is it Walt? It's no, Walt. no, no, no. It is a bot. Okay. Okay, I understand that it's a bot. Who created it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hang on. This is like saying, Vince, who created Shazam's trick? Well, it's a bot. Yes, it's a bot created by this beautiful boy over here, though. So you know. Ah, uh, I can't. Hang on. It is you. No. <laughs> no. Fuck, I hate you. <laughs> Just tell me that you made it. I did not. Then who did? <laughs> I did not. I'm gonna. I'm not recording tonight if you don't tell me in the next five seconds. I'm, five. Hey, hang on, hang four, on. Four, three, Zach. two, Zach. one. I'm searching right now. It's not. It's not anyone we know. That's why I can't tell you. Okay. This is gonna be the longest stinger in the history it's... of the show. <laughs> now, are you gonna tell me? <laughs> I'm looking. I'm looking as we speak. Do you want me to text it's Walt? A... What yeah. are you looking at? That's what I don't understand. I'm searching. I'm searching Twitter because. What are you searching? <laughs> <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha
Okay. Okay. I know that there was that tweet of the guy who said that you made Joker's trick, but do you actually know that human being? No, I don't know him. No. But I know I know I know that it's true because it he wrote that before Joker's trick, like the date on the tweet is before Joker's trick even started tweeting. Right, right, right. I remember that. I remember that tweet. Okay, thank God. Jesus Christ, Zach. What, <laughs> what are you so mad at me for? Because I feel like you've been lying to me this whole time. I'm not jokey, I promise you. I'm not smart enough to figure out how to do this. All right, tell me, if this, tell me if this text to Walt is appropriate. Zach was blocked by the Joker's trick. He's accusing Vince again of being the Joker's trick. He claims you know who it is. Who is the Joker's trick? <laughs> That's like... This is like the message that uh, Frank Costanza leaves on Jerry's uh, uh, answering machine. Yes. He's like, uh, George's dad, <laughs> call me back. <laughs> you know? Steinbrenner's missing. George's dead. Call me back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I am crying, tears streaming down my face. <laughs> oh God damn! I needed this. Zach is blocked. Who's the Joker's trick? <laughs> Call me back. <laughs> uh.